This is an ABC podcast. The 26th of January is meaningful for many Australians for very different reasons. For Jill Stark, it was around this time, more than 10 years ago, that she realised she didn't need alcohol in her life. That experiment spawned a book, High Sobriety, My Year Without Booze, and it became a bestseller and it made Jill the poster girl for alcohol-free living. But those experiments come with a narrative arc all their own, and 10 years on, that book's been updated with what happened next. Hint, there were some very embarrassing moments. Jill Stark, welcome back to Life Matters. Thanks for having me. I'm kind of in awe of the, the honesty it took to write the first book and then to update it with, uh, you know, the, the continuing story, the, the ongoing story of what it's like giving up alcohol. It's a story of big contrasts. There's even a non-alcoholic drink named after you these days at your local. Tell us about that. That's right. We've really come a long way. In 10 years, the cocktail is called the Stark Reality, which I think is quite a fitting name because that's what sobriety feels like. It's raw and it's real and it strips you bare and it allows you to see yourself close up and in sharp focus. And sometimes that can be confronting the stark reality of that. But it also brings a sense of fulfillment and clarity that I find really rewarding. So yeah, Having a cocktail named after me that uh, does not bring me the same drama and headaches that alcohol used to is is a very nice place to be. So, Jill, what was the moment that you realised that maybe alcohol wasn't essential to your life? Well, when I first gave up alcohol in 2011, it was it was sort of a personal experiment in a way. I didn't plan to give up for a year then. I just woke up on New Year's Day 2011 with the worst hangover I'd ever had. And I'd been, you know, I'd been drinking since I was a teenager growing up in Scotland and then moving to Australia, which is also a big drinking culture. Um, And as a journalist, I had a sort of triple whammy of that um, identity of of being a big drinker. Um, So I woke up with this horrific hangover, which is how the book starts. And I decided I, I needed to give this a crack. I needed to just get onto dry land for a little while. And I'd been interviewing um, a guy called Chris Rain, who ran an organization called Hello Sunday Morning, which back then was just a movement that he started on his kitchen table as a young man uh, to help people stop drinking or cut back on their drinking. And when I interviewed him, he'd said, why don't you give it a try? And I just thought, how ridiculous, like I couldn't possibly, it's such a big part of my social life. But then when I woke up on that New Year's Day morning, or was close to the afternoon by the time I actually got out of bed, I just, I couldn't stop thinking about it. And the idea of stopping for three months, because that's how long he said that, you know, you really needed to shift your relationship with alcohol, because I'd done Feb fast before and kind of just white knuckled it. But three months, you really push yourself out of your comfort zone and find out a bit more about yourself. So the thought of not drinking for three months really scared me. And that's when I realized I had to do it because what role was alcohol playing in my life if the thought of not having a drink for 90 days seemed so daunting? So that's what led to my initial year off the booze. And obviously, I went back to drinking at the end of that year when the book came out. And I thought, you know, I'd be a mindful, moderate drinker. And I was for a while, but as many people who have a background of binge drinking, old habits kind of crept back in. And 
Um, in 2019, June 2019, I decided that it's perhaps time for a permanent separation with my old mate booze, and um, I haven't had a drink since. Yeah, it's a real roller coaster reading about the, the the going in, the coming out, the going in, the coming out of alcohol. Let's go back to those early years. You know, you you write that you had your first drink at 13, and that it was not just part of the social landscape. I think you say in Scotland, you know, non-drinking was punishable by death. But for <laughs> you personally, it really helped open up a new side of you. How did that work? Well, I was a a very anxious person and uh, I thought that alcohol would help me to be calmer, which I've since uh, discovered is is not the case. Like alcohol is a terrible therapist and it might take the edge off, but the next morning those edges are sharper and they cut you deeper. And the anxiety, you know, that terrible hangover anxiety that you feel when you wake up the next morning, the sense of regret and dread and shame and wondering what you did and what you said, that started to get more and more profound. But in the early days, I, I really loved the idea of alcohol. I felt it was freeing. It was liberating. It felt like I could be a, a more open version of myself. Um, And it was only when I stopped drinking that I realized a lot of the reasons that I thought I needed alcohol were actually just red herrings, that I I didn't really need alcohol for confidence or to fit in. It's just the way that we've been conditioned and obviously a very well cashed up alcohol industry that likes to tell us that we need alcohol to belong. That was something that I grew up thinking, and it was only when I opted out of that culture for a year that I realised that perhaps alcohol was not the panacea for all my troubles. That conditioning, though, you you illustrate really powerfully how strong that is, because you were a journalist writing about the binge drinking culture and the impacts that was having on people's health in Australia. I mean, that's what you did for a job, but you didn't see yourself in that category. How do you think we manage that little sleight of hand that we don't see the problems in our own drinking, even those of us who are well-versed in what problem drinking looks like? Well, I think there's a real cognitive cognitive dissonance, and there certainly was for me, as you say, like I was literally winning awards for writing about Australia's binge drinking culture. And then at the weekends, I was writing myself off. So I had this complete double life. And it was only when I wrote about my experiences of the first three months off the booze and published it in The Age that I had this huge um, response from people. And it was almost like it was a a full-page confessional where a lot of these alcohol experts suddenly saw me in a different light. But I think they had a, a lot of respect for the fact that I was actually able to be honest because I think back then, although now we have a whole canon of of quit lit which is books that are you know written by people who've quit drinking back then there wasn't really anything like that so it was a sort of very new conversation and yeah i i think the culture has has changed immeasurably since then but we are very much conditioned that alcohol is something that we need and alcohol is very normalized so people often ask me, well, how much were you drinking when you quit? Because people want to place their drinking on this continuum. They want to know if if my drinking was better or worse than theirs. Mm-hmm. Um, they want to know if I was an alcoholic, if I had to go into rehab, which which I didn't. And I don't identify with that term, but I also think there's there should be no shame in those terms and there, there is. There's, there's a sort of a real um, disconnect between people like to think that their drinking is normal, then they're not those hopeless alcoholics as they might want to categorize them. And I think that's really problematic thinking. And that's what I explore in the new chapters of the updated version of the book is I, for a long time, just thought that what I was doing was normal. 
But as a very eminent addiction specialist told me in the book, you know, just because we've normalized something in our culture doesn't mean that it's healthy. And so I, I think it's important when you're thinking about your drinking, and I, I'm absolutely not an evangelical sober person telling anyone that they need to quit. That's entirely um, your own business. But if you are thinking about your own drinking and wondering if there's a problem, like perhaps the question to ask is not, am I an alcoholic? But is drinking getting in the way of the life I want? Is it getting me closer to the person I want to be or further away? Is it impairing your relationships? Is it affecting your physical health, your mental health? Is it getting in the way of you functioning at your job? And when you start to answer those questions, you can see that perhaps you don't have to wait until there's a rock bottom catastrophic moment before you make a change. Because as I often say, if your house was on fire, you wouldn't wait until it burned to the ground before you called triple zero. And for a long time, I had a lot of spot fires that I was ignoring until I realised I probably shouldn't look away anymore. It's really interesting that you say, Jill Stark, that you, you don't identify as an alcoholic, but you are quite clear about the addictive nature of what was going on for you. Is that because you feel that the term alcoholic can get in the way of people recognising problematic behaviours? Like, oh, well, I'm not an alcoholic. I haven't been to rehab, haven't crashed my car, marriage still functional, not a problem. Exactly. And yeah, that's exactly what I, I looked at in the book and in my second crack at sobriety was we like to categorize people and as humans, we like to put people in boxes because it, it's how our brains operate. We, we sort of think that we are either a healthy drinker or we're an alcoholic and there's nothing in between. And I and I don't think that is the case. Now, Ruby Warrington, who wrote in her book, Sober Curious, she said that she believes that everyone who drinks is a little bit addicted. And what she means by that is you don't have to be full-blown alcoholic, drinking every day, drinking in the mornings, you know, that kind of level of dependency to have an addiction to a drug, even if it's a social addiction, which I think is very much where I landed. The idea that I couldn't socialize without a glass of wine was very much ingrained into me. So people might say, well, I only drink at the weekends or I only drink in these circumstances. But isn't that still an association that you need that substance to be functioning in that in that environment? We get bogged down in, in labels, which I don't think are necessarily that helpful. It's more, how is drinking impacting your life? And if it's not impacting your life in any negative way, then great. But for me, it certainly was starting to get in the way of living the life that I wanted. And it just wasn't conducive to having stable mental health for me either. And that was really the, the reason that I ultimately gave up. Yeah, I love how a therapist said to you, ask yourself if your drinking helps you, if your drinking habits match with your values. I thought that would have been a really mm. wake up moment. Yeah, and that's not a judgment call. That's not a morality call. That's not saying if you drink that you're an immoral person. That's that's not what she meant. What she was saying was the person that I used to become when I was drinking, <laughs> did that match up? And for me, you know, I was someone who, when High Sobriety came out in 2013, like to my great surprise, it was uh, it became a bestseller, and I was sort of flying all over the country and uh, overseas as well, promoting the book. And I, I, I was sort of living my best life and had this dream book and uh, my dream job, and I had everything I'd ever wanted. But then things kind of fell apart, which led to my second book, Happy Never After, about what happens when you get everything you've ever wanted and it's not enough because underneath it all, you don't feel like you're enough. And and that's that's really what what happened for me is that I realized that 
when I rebuilt myself from that kind of mental health crisis, the emotional issues that I was grappling with that went all the way back to my childhood, I was very much able to deal with them when I was sober and to put them in their place and understand them. But when I was drinking, because drinking removes our impulse control and we're more irrational and we're more emotional, I would end up in fights with my best friends when I was drunk at 3 a.m. because they weren't answering the phone or they weren't replying to my ridiculous text messages. And I definitely think that some of those friendships would not have survived had I not stopped drinking. And I'm sure that a lot of people who drink can relate to having said and done things that they probably wouldn't have had they been sober. And so that's what my psychologist meant by your values and the values of being authentic and being a good friend and being kind and being kind to myself and to others. I wasn't necessarily able to live up to those values when I was drunk and hungover all the time. Mm. We're speaking with Jill Stark. High Sobriety was her original book back in 2013. And as she mentioned it became a bestseller, saw her zooming around the country and and really being the public face of giving up alcohol. And that came with some, some interesting repercussions, which we'll get to in a moment. The updated version is called Higher Sobriety, and it details how easy it is to go back to the old habits in a culture that is awash with alcohol advertising, alcohol enabling, alcohol normalising. You're listening to Life Matters on ABC RN. Now, Jill, one thing you just mentioned that I wanted to come back to was that the the social and friendship impacts. You were saying that some of those friendships wouldn't have survived if you had continued drinking, but some of the friendships didn't survive you stopping drinking, did they? What was going on there? Yeah, well, certainly this time around, my second time of being sober, it's been three and a half years now. My friends, my friendships have definitely deepened and strengthened and the people around me are entirely supportive of my choices and most of them still drink. But back then, I had a different circle of friends. I mean, some of them are still with me, but I realized that some in the group were merely drinking buddies. <laughs> and when I took alcohol out of the picture, that that was like the glue that was holding the, the friendships together. And without it, they completely disintegrated. And they were often the same people who were quite defensive about my sobriety and were saying things like, I was judging them, which I absolutely wasn't. And I was very very clear in the book and in how I talk about sobriety that I'm not judging anyone who doesn't drink. This is my personal choice that works for me, but it's it's not for everyone and I don't judge anyone who um, who does drink. But people, one girl in particular said to me that she, I was judging the way that they drank because I used to drink like them. And now I was saying that life is better without alcohol, therefore the way they drink is bad. And I said, well, no, what I'm saying is the way that I drank for me had consequences that I could no longer endure. But if you drink in the same way and you don't have those consequences, then good luck to you. But what I've found is that generally, whether it's friends who you find out aren't really friends or people in your life, strangers, anyone in general who reacts quite defensively. And I've seen this quite a lot since I've been um, doing publicity for this updated version of the book that we often get talkback callers calling in saying, or, or comments left on, on articles that I've written saying, why do you have to preach to everyone? Why can't you just let those of us who drink moderately carry on? Well, yeah, I, I I am. I'm not I'm not saying that. And if you're hearing that, then perhaps 
there's something there that you need to look at. And I have found that the people who tend to be the most offensive are often the ones that have an uncomfortable relationship with alcohol themselves. Um, they just don't want to look at it because it's confronting to look at it. No one really wants to. Well, <laughs> exactly. And you, know, you mentioned that argument that Ruby Warrington makes, who also writes in this field, she wrote Sober Curious, as you said, uh, that it's impossible to drink moderately because anyone who drinks alcohol regularly is a little bit addicted. That's an idea that many of our listeners might really struggle with, that if they have a glass of wine with dinner or a few beers on the weekends, they've got a problem. Is it more about working out your own tolerances, whether that's, you know, physically or in other in other aspects? I think what she's saying there is that it is one of the most addictive drugs that you can ingest. It's up there with nicotine and heroin in terms of it having that effect on our dopamine receptors and, and making us want to crave more. And I obviously do know people in my life who drink moderately. But I know more people who don't than, than than do drink moderately. And I think what Ruby is saying is that alcohol is, whether it's physically addictive or socially addictive, the idea that you still want to have a glass of wine in a certain circumstance, is that because you just like the taste or is it because you've created this sort of association that you must have a drink in those in those circumstances? And I, I think the only way you can really find out the answer to that is to have a spell of not drinking, to realise that you can do it and that you don't need it. And yeah, I, I think it's not as black and white as perhaps Ruby makes out that we're all a little bit addicted. But I think I, the idea of the concept of what she's raising there, I think, is correct that alcohol by its very chemical makeup will always leave us craving more. And some of us may be more predisposed to craving more than others, but it is a difficult drug to moderate. And I think there's a lot of shame for people who, I mean, I get messages on my Instagram every single day whenever I talk about sobriety, which is a lot, obviously, from people saying, I feel like I can't moderate I've tried and I always say I'm going to have one or two and then I end up having five and what's wrong with me and there's a great amount of shame attached to this idea that we can't that people can't moderate and I I think we need to take the shame away from people I mean the shame I think should be with the alcohol industry who who have tried to convince us that alcohol is necessary for every cultural pastime that we value that we use it to culture to celebrate to commiserate to commemorate and everything in between um so it's difficult in that culture to opt out but it is getting easier with the rise of the sober curious movement but yeah moderation is something that I tried and I found that the mental gymnastics required to sort of bargain with this drug that was always going to have the upper hand seemed just too exhausting. Like, you know, saying, well, I'll only drink till 10 o'clock or I'll, I'll only drink on the weekends and having all these rules. Like, it's just easier for me to say I don't drink at all. But, you know, that's not for everyone. Like, some people have successfully managed to, to moderate, but it is a difficult thing to do. And if that's you, if you're finding it difficult to moderate, know that it's not all, it's not some moral failing on your part that you can't do it. Yes, that uh, that issue of judgment and defensiveness in our kind of societal attitudes to alcohol was really interesting to me when you were writing about what it was like when you were experimenting with trying to be a moderate drinker, but you were also touring the book. What was happening then with, with people's reactions to you? 
So I stopped for about 14 months in the end. And I, you know, I never said I was going to stop forever, but it was really unsettling to, to, to realize that a lot of people had tied their relationship to alcohol to mine. And, and they they would message me and say, why are you drinking again? Or, or have you been able to drink moderately? And people wanted to know that I had this magic bullet answer for them. Or, or people would be quite judgy. I'd be sitting in a pub having a glass of wine with friends. And you know, it happened several times where people were like, aren't you that? woman who wrote a book about sobriety you know it's it's almost like people were some people were really disappointed because they wanted me to show them a different way um, and and others were almost gleeful in the ah uh, you know she's she's failed sort of approach to it but it's difficult when you didn't ask to be a role model for for the temperance movement but you've been put into that position and literally on the front page of one of the British newspapers there was a picture of my face with the headline the poster girl for sobriety <laughs> that's just like that is that is not a headline I ever wanted to see so yeah I don't I don't profess to be anyone's role model or to be the expert on any of this I'm an expert on my own experience and if people take um, comfort or inspiration from that, then that's wonderful, but it's certainly not something I set out to do. Jill Stark, you write very powerfully too about the some of the really dark places that you went during your struggles with drinking. And you also write that this time around, you didn't do a big public announcement, you just went, right, I'm, I'm going to give it up again, and it's bringing rewards, but also that it's not all easy. Like you said earlier in our chat, it's raw, it's real, it strips you bare, that can be really confronting. What's helping you stick with at this time around, even though it can be so scary? Well, I do often talk about this because I think it's important that that um, those of us who are choosing a sober life don't become evangelical and, and overzealous in our description of that life because it's not always easy. I mean, maybe it is for some people, but I know for, for many that, that it still is challenging. There's a certain amount of, of grief that comes from giving up alcohol and saying goodbye to this part of yourself that you identified with so strongly. Like for me, I was the the party girl, like always the first on the dance floor and the last to leave the party. And who are you without that persona? As it turns out, I'm a, a calmer and less hectic person. But but it was it's a real sort of rebuilding of your sense of self that comes from it. And that's that's what I've gained from this. Is yes, it's confronting to when you don't numb your feelings with alcohol anymore because you know alcohol does not remove your problems in many ways it illuminates them it shines a flashlight on the things that perhaps you were too scared to look at and you have to do the work so I often say that if the worst thing about sobriety is you get to feel all your feelings then the best thing about sobriety is you get to feel all your feelings and that's what I've found is that I've really gained this strong sense of self, like a connection to my, what I would call my authentic self, which is, you know, I, I think I partied a lot in my younger years because I was bullied as a child and I wanted to fit in and drinking drinking gave me that sort of sense of belonging, which, as I said, the alcohol industry has worked very hard for us to believe is what we need, um, a drink in our hands to fit in. And so giving that up was a process of of well, who am I with without that? And realizing that, you know, I don't actually need the approval of anyone else to live my life. Like the only approval that really matters is my own. And, and you know, a friend of mine said recently that in all the years she'd known me, she'd never seen me with such a strong sense of self. And I thought that was such a compliment because that's how I feel about sobriety is, you know, I do, it is hard at times, but the rewards for me are far outweighing 
the negatives. And I, I feel often just a deep sense of joy, not all day, every day, of course, but I do, I do feel things more deeply than I did before, because that's what happens when you're not numbing yourself with this drug. You get to feel everything, good and bad. Well, we started this conversation, Jill, uh, with talking about the non-alcoholic uh, drink that's named after you at your local. There, there's this upsurge in non-alcoholic bars and pubs and venues. So, you know, that's a big change from how things were when I was growing up, when there was the pub or that was it. How big has that cultural shift really been so far, do you think? I mean, we we might be seeing young people on social media talk more positively about sobriety, but do you think those attitudes are still fairly entrenched in Australia? I mean, I think it's an extraordinary shift from where we were, but we still we still have a lot of work to do. Like drinking is still predominantly the cultural pastime and it's still quite valued, but I think it's really changing and, and having this incredible increase in the non-alcoholic drinks sector, it's the fastest growing sector category of drinks. Um, to see that happening is is really helping to normalise sobriety and moderation and taking a break from alcohol, which we just couldn't have imagined when I was writing the book, you know, 10 years ago. Like, I spoke to a senior member of the hospitality industry in Australia to ask him about non-alcoholic venues back then because at the time there was some of these venues popping up in Ireland, you know, a country not known for its temperance. (laughs) And I said, when are we going to see this in Australia? And he literally laughed at me and said, well, that would a pub with no beer would, would never work here. And that's funny because, you know, just a few months ago, I went to a pub without booze put on by an owner of a, of a hotel, a pub here in Melbourne, who literally only served non-alcoholic drinks for an entire day. And he had a DJ and everything was going off. Like it was just, it was extraordinary to see that shift, to see the hospitality industry really get on board and understand that if this is a huge untapped market for them if they if they're not catering to it then they're really missing out so it's a less lonely place to be as a sober person now that that you see the culture slowly changing and people you know sobriety's had kind of a sexy makeover we were seeing a lot of young influencers on tiktok and instagram talk about the sober life and talk about how you can lead a rich and fulfilling existence without alcohol. Like that's just something I didn't have back then. And perhaps if I'd seen that when I was growing up, I wouldn't have been on the trajectory that I was on. So yeah, it's definitely shifting. I think we still have these cultural associations that we need to change. I think in the years to come, we will start to see alcohol come out of sports advertising in the way we did with tobacco. Like when we start to see those areas change, we'll know that we've really shifted the culture because I think we will look back in years to come at the way that alcohol was used and in a similar way to the way we look at tobacco and think wow that was that was a bizarre um a bizarre link that we made with our national identity that we have to be drinking all the time and i think the the sober curious movement is proving that you can be australian you can be um yourself entirely alcohol free and, and still have a good life Yep, it's always fascinating to see how the definition of us Australian, what it means to be Australian, can shift and change over time. Jill Stark, thank you so much for joining us on Life Matters today to talk about the updated edition of your book, Higher Sobriety, My Years Without Booze. It was a joy chatting to you. Thanks so much for having me. You're listening to ABC RN. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.